Turn to uh, John chapter 2. If this is your first time here, we began a new series last week going through the book of John. And we're talking about the title of the series is Revealing the Mystery. In other words, there is a mystery that I see in the book of John that's not in Matthew, Mark, or Luke because it's a different gospel. And if you weren't here last week, you really need to get the the uh message from last week and listen to the CD or listen to it on the internet so you can catch up with us. And what we're going to do is go through one chapter a week and see the secrets of Jesus through the eyes of John. And there are things in the book of John that are not in any other book of the Bible that are not in any other gospel. For instance, even what we're going to talk about today, the first miracle which he did is not in Matthew, Mark, and Luke because Matthew, Mark, and Luke record the last year of Jesus' ministry John records the first two years of his ministry. That's why there are things in John that are not in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And that's why we want to go through the book. Now, uh, I gave you some homework last week. And this week, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand as to whether you did your homework or not. But next week, I am. So I'm letting you know right now that there is a pop quiz Next week, all right? So this week, because I preached last week on John 1, and I'm preaching this week on John 2, your homework last week was to read John 1 and John 2. So I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, so I'm letting you slide the first week. But next week, you'll be in trouble if you don't do the homework assignment, all right? I'm going to ask people to stand in the corners that did not do, and I'm kidding. But this week, your homework assignment will be to read... John 2 and John 3, because next week I'll preach on John 3, all right? So I'm just preparing you. Do you understand why I'm doing this? I'm trying to get you to read the Bible. I want you to think about this. If you're a Christian, you might as well face it. Sooner or later, you're going to have to read this book. So let's start reading it now, all right? All right, now, John chapter 2 is divided into three parts, and... I'm going to have to talk about all three parts. It's so good. I want us to actually read the whole chapter. Don't tune me out right now, all right? Don't check out and say, well, we're going to read some Bible verses, and I'll check out and read the bulletin right now. No, read the Bible and see if you see some things in here that you've never seen before and allow the Holy Spirit to speak to you, all right? John chapter 2, verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Now, both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. Now, right there, we won't know why he was invited, and I'll tell you in a moment. And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Jesus said to her, woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, I want you to just watch this next verse. Watch the power of a mother. His mother said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. Now, let me just explain. Jesus said to her, my hour has not yet come. Mothers are so influential that they can speed up the plan of God that was even before the creation of the world. Jesus said, it's not time yet. She doesn't care what he says. She turns to the servant and says, whatever he says, do it. And Jesus said, well, i got to do what my mom says, you know. So here we go. Now, verse 6, there were set there six water pots of stone according to the manner of purification of the Jews containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. Jesus said to them, fill the water pot 
pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim, and he said to them, Draw some out now, and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. When the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine, and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. And he said to him, Every man at the beginning sets out the good wine, and when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior. You have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Verse 12, after this he went down to Capernaum, he, his mother, his brothers, and his disciples. And they did not stay there many days. Why didn't they stay there many days? Next verse tells us, because the Passover of the Jews was at hand. So Jesus went up to Jerusalem, and he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business. When he had made a whip of cords, now I just want you to notice, we're going to come back and talk this, who made the whip? Okay. When he had made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overturned the tables. And he said to those who sold doves, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Then his disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house has eaten me up. So the Jews answered and said to him, What sign do you show us since you do these things? What, what authority do you have to come into the temple and do this is what they're asking. Verse 19, Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, It's taken 46 years to build this temple. Will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them, and they believed the Scripture and the word which Jesus had said. That's the second part. First part's the water and the wine. Second part of John 2 is the cleansing of the temple. Third part, most people have never seen in their life. They kind of read over this. It's very important. Third part, verse 23. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men and had no need that anyone should testify a man to him, for he knew what was in man. In other words, he didn't need anyone to tell him what was in man because he made man. Now, these are the three parts of John chapter 2, all right? Number one, turning the miracle of the water into wine. The message is entitled The Beginning of the Miracles. This is the way Jesus began his ministry, all right? Doing this natural miracle, the first miracle. Turning the water into wine is the first part. The second part is the cleansing of the temple. The third part is, and listen carefully, the third part is Jesus' non-committal to surface believers. It's very important. We're going to talk about it in a moment. Jesus' non-committal. He did not commit himself to them because he knew their hearts. He knew men. He knew what was in them. Jesus is non-committal to surface believers, right? First part, we're going to talk about the water and the wine. And when I went through John 2, I just got overwhelmed with how much Jesus cares about people. And so that's what every part is talking about, how much he cares. Number one is that Jesus cares about natural things. That's what I want you to see. This is what John is trying to tell us. Jesus cares about natural things. He goes to this wedding. He was invited to this wedding. His disciples were invited. His mother was invited. Most historians believe that it was either the family of John or John himself was the groom who wrote this book. 
One or the other, and that's why Jesus was invited, because he was a relative, because John was his nephew, if you remember. And that's why Mary was concerned when they ran out of wine, because she was a relative as well. Now, you have to understand something about the, the wedding feast in those days. They lasted eight days. Some people say seven to eight, but when you include everything, it was an eight-day period. This wedding feast lasted eight days, and it was the responsibility of the bridegroom and the bride's family to have wine at the celebration. They had fermented grapes at that time. They did not add alcohol to it, but it was a fermentation, and it was a wine, and it was their responsibility to have that there. And on the third day of the wedding feast, they ran out of wine, and Mary gets very upset about it. Here's what the Lord showed me. He cares about things in our life that are just normal things through this. This wasn't a big deal, other than the bridegroom and the bride were going to be embarrassed probably for the rest of their life because they would always remember they were the ones that invited everyone for an eight-day feast and everyone went home after three days. And they were going to be very embarrassed about it. Jesus' mother was concerned, so Jesus was concerned. He is concerned about the normal, natural things in our lives that most of the time we don't think he's concerned about. But he is concerned about those things. And I want you to understand that. Now, I do want to just talk in human terms for a moment, all right? I want you to think about this. Why did Jesus go to this wedding? I mean, now, now think about it with me, all right? After all, he was a man. And if you don't know this, I, I hate to burst your bubble, but men don't enjoy weddings. The men in those days went for one reason, the wine. That's the only reason they went. Today, men go for one reason as well. If they have wine, that could be it. But most of the time, it's the food. I want to know, what are they serving? Now, for a while, I, you know, they're going to have cake. Yeah, but you don't get a big piece. So that's when someone else cuts it for you. It's not That's not in, that enticing to go. I want to know, are they going to have chicken wings? Are they going to have anything of substance there, you know? Men don't like weddings. That's all there is to it. Jesus could have been doing a lot of other things, but he went because he cares about people. And by the way, while I'm on this explaining that men don't like weddings, I'd like to just, I'd like to say something else here. If you are the woman that came up with the idea to invite men to showers, I want you to leave this church and never come back. Because I have something in my heart against you. I want you to understand that. I cannot imagine the conversation of the first women's group that came up with the idea of the couple's shower. I can't even imagine that conversation. Hey, let's invite our husband. They would much rather come here than play golf Saturday. It must have been a bunch of newlyweds sitting around that didn't understand. I just, ladies, I don't want to come to a couple shower, okay? I just, just let you know. And neither does any other man in here. Please go back to the way it was. All right, let's, let's go on. I'm, I made my point. The point is, here's Jesus at this wedding and there's something, his first miracle wasn't healing someone. 
It wasn't raising someone from the dead. It wasn't casting a demon out of someone. It was turning water into wine, something that had really no eternal value. It was something just simply for the pleasure of the people there. I want you to understand something. God wants you to enjoy the earth. It is okay if you're happy on the earth. You don't have to walk around sad because you're a Christian. It's all right to enjoy this earth. Now, I want to ask you two questions. One of them maybe you've thought about, but the second one maybe you've never even thought about. And the first one is very easy to answer. It's very easy. All of you will know the answer to the first question. Here are the two questions. Number one, who made your five senses? Who made your taste, your touch, your smell, your hearing, and your sight? Who made your eyes, your ears, your nose, your tongue, and your nerve endings? Who, who made your senses? Who? God. Okay, now here's the second question. Why? See, maybe you've never thought about this. Why did God make your five senses? It's very simple. Because he wanted you to enjoy the earth. That's why. He, I, I was just on vacation you know, in Colorado. He wanted me to see the Rocky Mountains. He wants me to see them and enjoy them. He wants me to see the stars at night. He wants me to hear glorious music. He wants me to smell beautiful flowers. He, he wants me to, to be able to hold my children and embrace my family, to feel them, to touch them. He wants me to be able to taste banana pudding. It's just what came to my mind. <laughs> he wants me to be able to enjoy the earth. Maybe you've never thought about it. Listen to me carefully. God doesn't want you to endure the earth. He wants you to enjoy the earth. He created the world and all that is in it for our enjoyment. He wants you to enjoy it. So God is concerned about natural things. He is concerned about the things you're concerned about. If you're concerned about living in a safe neighborhood for your children to grow up in, I want you to know that that's not a bad concern, and God is concerned about it also. If you're concerned about saving and, and uh, managing your money right and having a good job so you can send your children to college one day, that's a good concern. That's okay. God doesn't mind you enjoying this earth. He wants you to enjoy it. God even likes for you to have hobbies. That's all right. That's not unspiritual. Jesus cares about the natural things in our life, and he wants us to enjoy the earth. He wants us to enjoy the creation. Let me show you a verse of Scripture. Many people see it in a negative light. It's not negative. It's just a clear verse of Scripture. Watch this. First Timothy 6, 17. Command those who are rich in this present age and by the way, before you exclude yourself from this verse, that's you. Compared to over half the world, that's you. If you're sitting here today, you're rich in this present age. Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in or to trust in the living God. Now watch this carefully. Who gives us richly all things to enjoy. You see that? Who gives us richly all things to enjoy? Who gives them to us? God. And why does he give them to us? To enjoy them. 
Jesus is concerned about the natural things that are in your life. Jesus cares about the things you care about. He was a human. He was a human. Joseph, his earthly father, died between the ages when Jesus was between the ages of 12 and 16. Have you ever thought about, did God know that before he chose Joseph to be Mary's husband? Did God know the exact day that Joseph was going to die before? Sure, because he knows everything, right? Okay, why then, out of all the men that were there on the earth at that time, why did he choose a man that would die in his teenage years? You ever thought about that? I think he did it because he wanted to experience what we experience on this earth. I think he wanted to experience what it was like to be human and lose someone close to you. I want you to understand something. No matter what you go through on this earth, Jesus understands. We have a God who became a human and lived on this earth 33 years so he could understand what we go through. Jesus knows what it's like to put your arm around your mother and walk her home from the funeral of her best friend. He understands and he cares. So he cares about natural things. Here's the second part of John 2. Jesus cares about spiritual things. He cares about natural things, but he also cares about spiritual things. He wants us to have a relationship with God. He wants us to commune with God. He goes to the temple where they should have been praising and thanking God and talking to God and listening to God and having a relationship with God. And instead, they were bartering about and arguing about money. They had made the temple a place where they weren't communing with God, where all they were doing was going through ritual and form, and they weren't really having a relationship with God, and they had all these things they were selling for the sacrifice and trying to make money and trying to barter, and the furthest thing from their mind was God. It was all on the natural at that point. And he is concerned about the spiritual as well. And he comes in and says, I don't understand why you're doing this. And this is the first time he cleanses the temple. He also cleanses the temple right before he goes to the cross. There are two times that he does this, two separate times. When you read this in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you'll read it at toward the end of, the, of those books because it is right before the last Passover. This is the first Passover he ever attends, which says to me that he is concerned about our relationship with God in the beginning and at the end of our life. Wherever we are, he's concerned about us pressing into God. Now, I want you to see the, the analogy in this, all right? And I want you to think about the natural part of this. First of all, Jesus made the whip himself. Now, why did John think that was important to include when he wrote, you know? I think that he thought it was important because he remembers how long it took Jesus to make the whip. And I think he also remembers the conversation that the disciples had when he was making the whip. I mean, can't you just hear these guys? Uh, what's he making over there? It looks like a whip. What did you say to him? I didn't say anything. I saw Peter talking to him. You know how Peter is. Can, can you imagine, it may have taken him a couple of hours to make the whip. 
Think about it. He goes into the temple, sees what's happening, turns around, walks out, and grabs some things and starts making a whip. And those disciples are thinking, now this is interesting. We've never seen this side of him before. And then he takes the whip, a whip now, and goes in and drives these people and these animals out of the temple and says, this is not what my father's house is for. Now, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, he makes another statement, and he says, my father's house is supposed to be a house of prayer, or communing, having a relationship with God. But you have turned it into a den of thieves or a den of robbers. And I want you to see the spiritual analogy here. He goes into the temple, and he drives the robbers and the thieves out of the temple. Then they said to him, what gives you this authority? And immediately, he refers to the temple, but he's not talking about a building now. He's talking about his body, right? Now, I want you to see the analogy, all right? Scripture says that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Is that right? First Corinthians. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus drives robbers and thieves out of the temple. Do you realize that right now there are still robbers and thieves that are trying to steal from you, they're trying to kill you, and they're trying to destroy you? Do you realize that? There are demonic spirits that are trying to attack us and trying to attack our families right now. But here's the good news. Jesus still has a whip. And here's better news. The whip is not for you. The whip is for the ones that are trying to steal from you. The whip is for the robbers and the thieves. And Jesus still wants to cleanse the temple. He still, to this day, is concerned about the temple, this temple, and he still wants to cleanse the temple. And if you will let him into every area of your life, he'll drive the thieves out. But if you say, Jesus, you can come into the temple, but not that room, and not that room, and not that room, then you can just keep the thieves. But if you'll say, Jesus, you can come into every area of my life, this is good news, he comes in with a whip. And he takes care of those that have been stealing from us. I'm telling you, if you have a problem with lying, if you have a problem with pride, if you have a problem with lust, if you have a problem with bitterness, just let Jesus in the temple. And he'll take care of them. So he's concerned about spiritual things. And here's the last thing that I see in this. Number three, Jesus cares about eternal things. I want you to remember those scriptures that we read, 23, 24, and 25. This is what they say. When he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, many believed in him because of the signs which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men. And Jesus had no reason, no need for anyone to tell him about man because he created him. He knows what's in man. I want you to notice something here. Here's what it says. Many believed in him, but Jesus didn't have a relationship with them. Jesus didn't commit himself to them. Why? Because they didn't commit themselves to him. They just had a surface belief. There are a lot of people today that have this same relationship with God. Just go to church every now and then. Just have a surface belief in Jesus. And I'm here to tell you, that's not enough. If you want Jesus to commit himself to you, 
then you have to commit yourself to Him. As a matter of fact, He's already made a commitment to you. He made that commitment on the cross. Now, for that commitment to be enforced, you have to make that commitment. That's what Hebrews tells us. There's a covenant, but that covenant is not enforced until both parties come into agreement. God has already come into agreement with the whole world. God has already sent His Son Jesus to pay the price for the sins of the whole world. And now He's just waiting for you as an individual to come into agreement with what He's done. And then God will be committed to you. Once you make a commitment to Him, He makes a commitment to you. That's what's great about being a Christian. If you're saved, you understand that. If you have made that commitment to Him, you understand that He has made a commitment to you and He will never leave you and never forsake you. I'm telling you, this, this is what salvation is like. We come to Jesus, we say, Jesus, from the bottom of my heart, from now on, I want you to be the Lord of my life. I want you to be the boss from now on. And Jesus says, okay, now I just want you to think about this. He can't lie. All right? You, you said to him, I want you to be the boss. And he said, okay, I agree to be the boss from now on. And then in a week or so, you say, you know, I, I think I'm going to go back over here and do some things I used to do. And he'll reach out and grab you by the neck. If you've ever, if you're saved, you understand what I'm talking about and just pull you up like this and say, you're not going over there. And you think, what are you doing? And this is what he says, I'm being the Lord. <laughs> now, come on. I've had it happen. And what's wonderful is, the more you get in this book, the closer you get to him, the less you want to go back over there. Because you begin to renew your mind and the way you think about that old life. But when you get saved, He makes a commitment to you. See, the question is, have you made a commitment to Him? Because if you have, then He's made a commitment to you. But He doesn't make commitments to surface believers. He only makes commitments to those who will let Him be Lord. You understand, He can only be God. There's no role reversal with God. Lord, I'd like to have a relationship with you, but I'd like to be God. Oh, sure, that'd be fine. You just tell me what to do and I'll do it. No, this is what he says. No way, pal. I can't be anything but who I am. Let me tell you who I am. I'm the creator and the sustainer of all life. If you want me, I'm God. That's who I am. You, you realize we're all born wanting to be boss. Now, some of our children express it more than others. But every person has the desire to be boss. But some of them will actually tell you that, you know. We, um, our daughter Elaine, when she was three years old, Debbie, I was out of town. Debbie told her to do something, and she said, I don't have to. And Debbie said, why don't you have to? And she said, because you're not the boss. She said, Dad is the boss, and when Dad is out of town, I'm the boss. She was three years old. So Debbie took her to the other room and explained to her the way of the Lord more perfectly. <laughs> With a wooden spoon. <laughs> and she understood. She wasn't the boss anymore. See, so here's my question for you today. It's real simple. Who's the boss? Come on, this is how simple it is. 
I want to know who's the boss in your life. And I'm going to tell you the truth now. I know this may hurt, but I'm going to tell you the truth. If you're the boss, you're on your way to hell. Because the only way that salvation works is if he's the boss. It's the only way. It doesn't work any other way. So I have a real important question for you. Who's the boss? And are you ready to let him be the boss? If you are, 